Good morning. Uh, my name is Kirk Miller, and uh, thank you so much for having me here this morning as a guest preacher. Um, I'm a friend of Jonathan's for a while now, and so it's really, it's really been a joy to be able to be invited to be here, and honestly, to be able to prepare this message this morning has been really good for me, and I hope that you will uh, benefit from it as well as we sit under God's word this morning. I understand that you guys are working through a, a series called The Big Five, addressing five big important questions that each one of us uh, has to try to answer and consider. And you've looked at the question, where did I come from? Why am I here, my, my purpose? And even questions as big as, who am I, my identity? And so we've looked at where, we've looked at why, we've looked at who, and now we're going to move to what. What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for me? Or we could reframe the, the question, not just what is God's will, but assuming he has a will for my life, how can I know it? How can I possibly know what God's will is for me? And maybe we can begin by considering some common approaches that we might at times fall into as we think about God's will for our life. Sometimes I think we can approach God's will this way, that as if God has a perfect plan for my life, like almost like a highway, that if I make the wrong decision, sort of like up here that meme I made on the left, if I, if I make the wrong decision or if I fail to take the right exit, that I sort of have diverted and ruined God's will for my life. He had this perfect plan, but I made the wrong choice and everything here on out, it's a domino effect. Everything is affected. Nothing will ever be the same again. My wrong choices will ruin God's plan and his will for my life. And what happens? I know this is, this is, this is hopefully not me skidding like that, but if you're like me, I'm not the best navigator. I really have to rely on my GPS. And even with a GPS, I just get lost in my own thoughts. I zone out and I inevitably miss my exit or take the wrong one. And what happens? The GPS rerouting, right? And hopefully God is able to reroute, you know, our life is what we think, but nothing will be the same again. If I, if I choose the wrong college, maybe, or if I take the wrong job, I, I, I go to the wrong city, or I marry the wrong person, and think about the devastating consequences. If I marry the wrong person, who are they supposed to marry? And then the domino effects continue. We start to worry or maybe the other way we think about discerning God's will is sort of like Saruman here with the crystal ball from Lord of the Rings, if you're not familiar. We think of God's will, trying to discern his will, almost like using a crystal ball. It's something mystical and mysterious that we hope, in, we hope to chance upon. We, we think of discerning God's will almost like waiting for a, to receive a special feeling. Folks, we'll, we'll talk about when someone needs to make a decision that we, we, we encourage them to pray about it, which is great. Obviously, we want to pray and seek Scott, see God's will, but sometimes we think of that less as praying that God would give me biblical, uh, biblical thinking and wisdom and more like we would eventually have a certain special feeling or, or feel at peace about a situation. And we sort of take that subjective feeling as confirmation that something is God's will. 
or we, we talk about, uh, I think God told me to do this, or I feel that the Spirit is leading me a certain way. Or, or maybe, maybe you've done this or, or seen someone do this. We want to know God's will, and so we just kind of open up the Bible and point and hope that just almost like treating the Bible like a magic eight ball, like should I marry Susie? Uh, yes or no. And we just hope that the Bible will randomly, mysteriously give us the information we need. Well, what if I told you that discerning and even following God's will is actually a lot simpler than those ideas? And we're going to go to Romans 12. If you have it on your phone or if you have a physical Bible with you, if you'd open to Romans 12, this will kind of be our anchor text. We're going to, I'll, I'll mention other passages as we go, but this is kind of an anchor text if you want to hang out here. And this is Paul writing to the church in Rome. The Apostle Paul, when sent by Christ, and he writes, as we have on the screen here as well, if you prefer that, he writes to the church in Rome saying this. He says, Therefore, I urge you, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that is, because God has saved us through his gospel, in light of the mercy he's giving us, we ought to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice that is holy and it's pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That as those in the Old Testament offered sacrifices to God as a form of worship, so we offer our lives as a sacrifice, so to say. That is our form of worship today. And what does this look like? Well, it means we're not conformed to the pattern of this world. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. We're not going to look like the world in a sense. But what? We're going to be transformed. Be transformed. How? By the very renewing of our minds, our mindset. And then when this happens, when our mind is renewed, notice this, we will be able to test and approve, or some translations say discern, that as our mind is renewed, we are actually able to discern what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so notice that. We can discern God's will. And, empowered by the gospel, we're actually able to follow it. We're able to strive after following God's will. Now we're going to come back to this verse in due time. But in the meantime, before we do that, let's first dispel what is maybe one common misconception. And so our first point, sort of our first block of, uh, uh, of material we're going to consider today is this, that God's will is certain. That's the first thing I want us to know, is that God's will for our life is certain and secure. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people that likes labels and likes terms and if that's not helpful for you, don't worry about it. But what I find is that it's almost like if you've taken a personality test or if you've maybe understood a little bit of psychology, sometimes there's these terms to describe personalities or maybe a diagnosis. And, and, and once you know the term, it becomes helpful in being able to recognize something or remember a concept. And so a term that some folks use to describe this aspect of God's will is God's decreed will. That is what he's decreed to happen, what he has planned to happen. And this pertains to absolutely everything 
that ever occurs. God has planned out, in other words, everything that ever happens, and he is in control of it. There's not a single maverick molecule running around outside of God's control. He controls everything down to the smallest atom. Some have compared it to thinking about the idea of a blueprint. A blueprint is, is, that, is that, that, that plan, the sketch of, of how a house or some other construction is going to be built, and it lays out everything that ought to happen in the build. And so God has planned everything out. He has a blueprint for all of history. We see this in a passage like Ephesians 1, all over Scripture, but just one example. Ephesians 1, verse 11, Paul again, writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, In him, that is, in Jesus, we believers were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, that is, God, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Notice that. Not that God works out some things, or he's in control of things occasionally. He steps in and intervenes every once in a while. But God works out everything according to his will, according to what he has planned. Or we know from Romans 8, if you're familiar with this, it's a popular passage in Romans 8 that talks about that we know, Paul writing to the church in Rome again, we know that for those who love God, those who are his people, we know that all things work together for their good. The good of making them like Christ, conforming them to Christ's likeness, to his image. And notice that again, not some things, but God works all things together for the good of his people. God is in control of absolutely everything. His plan for all of history, including your individual life, is certain and secure. This means that you are not powerful enough to have thwarted or to mess up God's plan for your life. Isn't that good news? Because if it, if it was dependent on us, if I had some ability to mess it up, certainly I would mess it up, right? We're not like the car in the meme that I made where we, where we could potentially steer off, take the wrong exit, and everything's ruined there on out. You're not able to make some wrong choice that somehow knocks God off the throne of having control and authority over your life. Any mistakes that you've made in the past, maybe you're you're saying, well, Kirk, you don't know what I've done. You don't know maybe some some evil I've committed, some wrong I've done, some sin that I've, that I've, I've dabbled in. You don't know, Kirk, of course that is disqualifying me from God's good plan for my life. No. If you are a believer in Christ, Any mistakes you've made do not disqualify you from God's good plan for you. Yes, we make mistakes. We sin all the time, right? But even God's good plan incorporates those and leverages them for our ultimate advantage of making us like Christ. And here's the other thing too. Any wrong or evil that others may have done to you Maybe significant evil, maybe significant harm, maybe even something as terrible as abuse. And when it feels like that has wreaked havoc on your life, certainly it's ruined things. It is not able, however, to outmatch God's good purposes for you. I think of Genesis 50, at the end of Genesis, you remember the character Joseph, if you're familiar with that book? 
Joseph, his brothers, sell him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. And at the very end, he, he's able to remark that although you, my brothers, intended that for evil, you certainly had evil intentions. God, nonetheless, his intentions all along, even in the midst of all that evil, were good. And it, here's the other thing, too. It doesn't make it any less evil. That's important to say. If we've experienced evil, if we've been harmed, the fact that God uses it for good doesn't make the evil itself good. It's still evil, but God is so powerful and he is so good that he will nonetheless use it for our good purposes. So this brings a deep sense of relief, a deep sense of rest and assurance to us if we just let that reality sort of sit on us for a while. If you think about it, it takes this huge weight off of our shoulders, right? That the ultimate achievement of God's will for my life then is not dependent on my performance or needing to make all the right decisions. Or that, that, someone, that someone that's, or something that someone has done to me, maybe some deep harm that they've done to me, maybe abuse I've experienced. It's not that that leaves me as damaged goods. We can sometimes feel that way, like I'm damaged goods. I'm no longer in a position to experience what God had really planned for my life now. That's not the case. Now, we're still responsible for our actions. We're still responsible to make the right choices as God has commanded us to do. But the point is God is in control regardless. And he often works in ways that we wouldn't expect him to, right? That if we had our plan for our life, if we had planned things out and we, when things were able to go the way we wanted them to, it often wouldn't go the way God actually had planned for us. We aren't, our, our, our plans for our life are not what often materialize, right? We think of a passage like Isaiah 55 where, where God is uh, talking about his promises to redeem all of creation as he's working through the people, Israel. And he says, my ways are not like your ways. As, as high as heaven is above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so God's plan is often in ways we don't expect. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. Deuteronomy is a book from the Old Testament. Um, if you're familiar, it's where Moses, having already given uh, one generation God's law, as they stand outside the promised land, about to go into the promised land and, and fight cities like Jericho, as we sang about, uh, Moses explains the law a second time. That's why it's called Deuteronomy. It's like duet, a second time that the law is explained. And Moses, as he's giving the law, as he's giving these commandments of what the people are to do when they enter the land, it says this. It says, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God. That is, there are some things that God has planned. There are some things that God knows that he just hasn't revealed to us. There's plenty that God knows that we just simply are not privy to. And that includes our, the future of our lives. We don't know what is ahead of us. But God knows. But although the secret things belong to the Lord our God and we leave those to him, the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever so that we may follow all the words of the law. And so God has revealed his will to us in the sense that, that, that we have been given his commands and we know what his will is in that sense. There are things that belong solely to God that only he knows, but there are things that he has revealed to us that he wants us to know, that we're able to know, and that we're able to follow 
empowered by the Spirit and the Gospel. And so that brings us to the second main point, which although God's will is certain, the second point is that God's will can be known. It's certain, but it can also be known. And this is a, a, another label that we can throw here, throw out here, is what we might call God's moral will. So we have God's decreed will, everything that he's ever planned, but also God's moral will. And by that we mean this is what God delights in. This is what's morally right and true. It's that which reflects his own character. It's, it would be embodied in the things he commands. It's revealed in the instructions we receive in Scripture. And this can be known. As Deuteronomy 29 says, it's the revealed things. It's the things that he has shown us so that we can actually follow his will. So it's not like the crystal ball where we have to hopefully mysteriously, you know, chance upon a special feeling of what God's will is. We can actually look in the scripture and know what his will is. We see this in Romans 12. Let's, we'll read this passage again. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And then, having your mind renewed and transformed, you will be able to test and discern, to approve what God's will is. Those things that he finds good, pleasing, and perfect. So notice three things in this passage. First is the reality that we can discern God's will. He says that, that, that we would ultimately be able to discern God's will. So God's will is not hidden from us. And isn't that amazing that the invisible, hidden God who did not have to make himself known to us, has revealed himself ultimately in the person of Christ, but then as recorded in Scripture. And we, as a result, can actually know his will. He has made his will known to us. How can we know his will? Paul explains. It's by having our minds renewed. You think about that. As our minds are renewed, as we, as we learn more from Scripture, as we learn to think thoughts after God, to, to, to think the way God thinks about the world, our minds become more in line with those things that he desires, those things that he delights in, those things that he wills. We will naturally pursue those things that he finds good and pleasing. And so how are our minds transformed? How are our minds renewed? It's through the study of Scripture. It's through coming to know His will as He's revealed it to us in the Scripture. And the result of it, thirdly, is that we will then live sacrificial, holy lives. Lives, as he says, that are set apart. He says that ultimately, Paul says, that this is going to result in us being a sacrifice. Our whole lives will be sacrificed to God. That as in the Old Testament, they, they offered up an animal and it was a burnt offering where the entire thing was consumed and offered to God. So our lives, every part of it, is to be consumed with pursuing God. I think of this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is Paul again writing, this time to the church in Thessalonica. He writes this. He says, For this is God's will. 
Okay, get ready, get ready for this. If anyone ever asks you, what is God's will? This is a great verse that you can go to. For this is God's will. He's about to tell us, what is God's will, Paul? Your sanctification. That's a big word, sanctification. But that just means this idea of being set apart. Being set apart as one of God's holy people. So if you think back to the Old Testament where God chose the nation of Israel among all nations, they were his special people. They were set apart and holy, dedicated uniquely to God. And then within the nation of Israel, there was a priestly class set apart to do God's service at the temple. And then even in the temple, there were certain ornaments and instruments that were set apart that you wouldn't just go use in your house. They were just for the temple. That's what it means to be holy. Things that are set apart Strictly for God's purposes. And that's what God's will is for our lives as believers. That we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart as holy. Both There's a sense of being set apart from sin, that we would be further and further removed from sin, as Paul says, not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but further and further set apart to the service and purposes of God. And so what does that look like practically? as we come to know God's will and as we seek to pursue it, let me give us seven practical, maybe diagnosis questions or or considerations that we can use. And if you want, you can pull out your phone and take a picture of this. But as we walk through these seven considerations that we can use as we try to make very practical decisions about pursuing God's will in our own life. The first one is this. Does it align with God's moral will. And again, by moral will, we just mean, is it right? Is it good? Does it align with what is true and what is morally right, those things that God delights in? Or we might say, is it sinful? According to Romans 12, we're only going to know what, God, what aligns with God's will as we allow our minds to be transformed. And we do that by learning more and more about God and what he delights in as he's shown it to us and revealed it to us in the scriptures. And so, believer, there's no way around it that if you walked in this morning and you're interested in this question, what is God's will for my life? Knowing God's will means we must know what he has revealed to us in the scriptures. It's not some mystical feeling we get or some warm fuzzies. We must actually devote ourselves to knowing the Bible. If I want to know God's will, I need to open up the Bible. I need to read it. I need to try to further understand it. Second, we want to ask when making a decision, not just is this option permissible? Is it permissible? But is it beneficial? Not just is something permissible, am I allowed to do it? But will it actually be helpful? Will it actually be beneficial? So Paul, again, writing to the church in Corinth, um, in 1 Corinthians 10, he writes them talking about a moral dilemma some of them were facing, trying to help them think through a a moral issue of, of what they're supposed to do with meat that were offered in pagan temples. And he says this to them. He says in verse 23, he says, All things are lawful. Yes, I agree. There, There are things that are lawful that we can do. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not all things edify. You see, there are certain things that are technically 
morally permissible, but they, they still might not be what's best. And, and if you think about it, as Christians, as those seeking to follow Christ, to simply aim for what's permissible is an incredibly low bar. To just say, well, can I get away with it? Is it allowed? We don't want to live our Christian lives like that. How much better if we were to say, what's actually beneficial? What, what might enable me to increase my joy in Jesus? Not just can I do it, but will this actually help me treasure Christ more? Will it help me best serve my Lord and Savior? Third, when making decisions, we can ask of ourselves, what's my true motivation here? Will this, for instance, bring God the most glory? Is that my deepest motivation in making a certain decision, that I want this ultimately to result in God's fame being known and showing how great and amazing he is? Are my motivations for making a certain choice selfish? Am I doing so purely out of self-interest? And of course, it's not wrong to do something that you want, if that's what we mean by self-interest. But what if we made our, our, our decisions using this as our metric instead? What do I think will bring God the most glory? You know, maybe when you're faced with a, a question of, of what, what, what friends should I have at school, or should I take this job, or should I move to this city, or should I pursue this career, whatever it is. What if we asked, will this enable my life to bring the most glory to God? And we use that as the measure for the decisions we make, instead of just simply making this decision based off of our own selfish reasons. Number four, don't bog yourself down with minutia. Rather, emphasize the weightier matters of God's law. And here I'm drawing on this from Matthew 23, 26, where Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day and he is condemning them for their actions. He says this in verse 26, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, and you Pharisees, you're hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. In other words, you tithe even down to the smallest things of your life. Even your, your spice cabinet gets tithed. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Or some translations say the weightier matters of the law. Things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Those are the things that God is most concerned with. And so I, I say that because I want to liberate some of you who might otherwise feel a, a, a struggle with this sense of paralysis, trying to determine God's will down to every little detail, like standing in the grocery aisle trying to figure out, is it God's will, will that I get 2% or whole milk? Like, use wisdom and just make a decision, right? Concern yourselves most deeply with the weightier matters of God's law. And speaking of wisdom... We should recognize, too, that even though we can know God's will, as I've said, and as, as Scripture shows us, we can know what God delights in, that doesn't mean it's always going to be simple putting that into practice. Let's be honest. A lot of decisions in life are thorny and difficult, and it's going to require what the Bible talks about as wisdom. You think about the book of Proverbs, where it wants to teach us wisdom, prudence, holy prudence 
of how we make decisions. And oftentimes, we're going to have to use wisdom. We're going to want to seek counsel from others. That's why we don't want to make just big life decisions all on our own, but get Christian friends around us and ask them for their advice as well and make these decisions together. Number five, we can ask ourselves, will this help me pursue Christ-likeness? Will taking a certain route actually help me grow in Christ-likeness? And we know that this is God's will for us, right? Romans 8, as we've talked about, that God is working all things together for good for those who love him. And that good that Paul is referring to is conforming us degree after degree into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God's will for believers is our sanctification, as we saw. It's for us to be to be living sacrifices and to be made like Christ. And so again, we can ask ourselves, not just, is this permissible? But to ask, will taking this path or pursuing this option help me become more like Christ? Do I think going this way will actually help me become more like Christ? Or if I go this route, could it actually create obstacles if I, if I take this job or if I move to this state or whatever the case may be, could, could there be things involved there that will actually create obstacles in me, me becoming and pursuing more Christ-likeness? Number six, how will this decision affect others? How might my decision affect others? And here I'm thinking about Jesus' summation of the law where he says, what are the two greatest commandments he's asked? And what does he say? He says, love God and love neighbor. And the second is like the first. Why? Because if we love God, we, we have to love those made in his image. We have to love those made in his image. And so as we make decisions, how can I make decisions that not only show a love for God, but show a love for those made in his image? Does this decision, in other words, display a loving care and concern for others? Might it even involve an element of self-sacrifice for others, laying myself down for others at my own expense? Am I considering not just what I want to do, in other words, but how it might impact those around me, like my nearest neighbors, oftentimes my own family, a spouse or kids, and considering what's best for them. Think of what Paul says in Philippians 2, that we are not only to seek our own interest, but also the interest of others. Or as he says in Romans 12, that we are to consider others as more highly than ourselves, consider them more highly than ourselves. And we ought to do that in our own decision-making. And then number seven, Lastly here, we can just ask ourselves, well, what do I want to do? What's my own preference? And my assumption here is that God uses means to bring about his will, which often just, just includes sort of the way he's built us, our personality, our constitution, our, our preferences. God works out his will oftentimes through our holy desires and aspirations. I think of 1 Timothy 3, where Paul talks about that those who desire to be elders or pastors, that that, that is a good aspiration, that God oftentimes works by giving us certain desires and aspirations. They're not always good desires that we have, right? But oftentimes they can be. And so sometimes at the end of the day, we can just ask, well, what do I want to do? And that can be a helpful gauge as well. And as we close, 
Let me remind us of this truth as well. That God's ultimate will for his people is to redeem them and to restore them. That God's plan from all creation, the very reason, as, as Paul says in Colossians 1, that the very reason God created the world was he created the world through Christ, but ultimately he created the world for Christ. That Christ would have a bride, the church, the people that God redeemed. And God accomplished this plan of salvation by sending his son to become a human being, truly God and truly everything it means to be a human for us and for our salvation. Jesus lived the life that we ought to have lived. We haven't obeyed God as we ought. We, we, we ought to obey God and worship God with every part of who we are, and we fail to do it. We fail miserably to do it. And yet Jesus comes as a human and lives the life that we ought to live. He represents us in his obedience. And then ultimately, he obeys to the very point of going to the cross, bearing our sins, taking the punishment for the sin that we deserve, dying the death that we deserve, and three days later, rising from the dead. And when he left that grave, he secured the accomplishment of God's will for our life. That one day, God will get us to the end. We will be made fully like Christ. We will share in his resurrection. And we will be released from death and sin's grip over us. And so if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, if, if your faith is currently not in Christ for salvation, we would plead with you to do that. Even now as you sit in, the, in your seat, Put your faith in Christ. Recognize that you have, you have nothing to offer God. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So place your faith in Christ. Lean holy, lean on Him, rely on Him. Look to nothing else as a source of your salvation but Christ alone. And if you're a believer, be assured that as sure as Jesus has exited the grave and is sitting at the right hand of God, that your salvation is so secure as well. It is located, it is hidden with Christ in God, as Paul says in Colossians 3. Your life and God's will for you is secure in the person and work of Christ. And as Paul says in Romans 8, that as God is working all things in your life together for the good of making you like Christ, nothing can separate you from that good saving purposes, from God's saving love. He says that, that nothing, neither nakedness, danger, sword, famine, demonic angels, nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, nothing can separate you, believer, from God's loving purpose to make you like Christ. And we can rest in that, knowing that that is his will for our life.